Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at Fish and wildlife.org that's fish and wildlife.org ladies and gentlemen happy thursday welcome back to another episode of the average conservationist podcast and i'm your host mark Schewing. well we are in our first full week of the month of october and here on the podcast we have decided to dedicate the month of October to conservation. Now, you may be seeing, saying to yourself, isn't this entire podcast about conservation? It is. However, we have spent a, you know, really the past year plus talking to uh, businesses and individuals uh, who are 2% certified, who have made that commitment uh, to giving back to wildlife. Uh, but for this month, uh, we want to focus on the organization's um, that have made it their mission uh, to to give back to to certain species, um, to protect their habitats, uh, their herd, the numbers, really any and everything uh, that these organizations are doing to protect uh, specific species uh, is something that we wanted to focus on. So all month long, every week you're going to go, you're going to get someone different from a different conservation organization. Uh, and we are going to be talking about all sorts of great stuff that, that these orgs are doing, um, you know, what their membership base is up to, uh, projects that they're working on, what they have in store for the future, uh, all that good stuff. So that being said, we are kicking things off with Lee McDonald from the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. And really fun episode. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I still don't know a ton, but prior to to speaking with Lee, uh, you know, I had a lot of questions uh, as far as, you know, all the stuff that the Goat Alliance is doing. I mean, I've seen stuff on social media about surveys and things like that, but 
Lee and I really get to kind of take a deep dive into, you know, what all of that work means and what they're doing with all this data that they're collecting and how they're working with, uh, you know, biologists to really try to protect this species as a whole. Um, it's, I mean, they are fascinating animals. The, the habitat and the areas that they live in is, you know, it's not like a lot of other um, big game animals out there. So the stuff that we got to talk about and cover, uh, you know, you can tell that Lee is obviously very passionate about the mountain goat and, you know, the work that the, the organization as a whole is really doing and, you know, why they really decided to form the organization uh, seven years ago. So really fun, great conversation, very informative for those of you out there who may not know a ton about uh, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Uh, this is a great one for you. So without any further ado, episode 72, kicking off Conservation Month, Lee McDonald from the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Uh, before that, though, I want to take a minute to tell you about our friends over at Wild Rivers Coffee. Speaking of people that love the outdoors and conservation, at Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches. That way they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Wild Rivers Coffee is also a proud partner with 2% for Conservation, and they believe in preserving wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything they sell, a portion of proceeds are being donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. So you're going to get uh, organizations like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Ducks Unlimited, as well as Trout Unlimited. So go to wildriverscoffeeco.com. Order your fresh roasted beans, some really sweet handmade mugs, uh, some really cool merchandise. Uh, and if you sign up and subscribe today, you're going to save 10% off your order. Or if you don't want to subscribe, if you just want to buy a t-shirt or you just want to buy a single bag of coffee to give it a shot, which I highly recommend you do, use the code, and this is all caps, FISH underscore wildlife, and you're going to save 10% off your order as well. So whether you subscribe, you just buy one, either way, we got you covered, 10% off. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com, use the code fish underscore wildlife and save 10%. All right, joining me on the podcast today from the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, I have Lee McDonald. Lee, how's it going, man? I'm good, Marcus. How are you? I'm doing well. I, uh, I appreciate you making some time. We're uh, kicking off Conservation Month here on the podcast and the the Goat Alliance is the first up, uh, so I'm excited to, to kick things off and, and learn more about the organization. Yeah, same here. Always happy to talk. Yeah, great. So I guess as far as the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance goes, let's kind of go back to the beginning and talk about you know, why it was founded, how it was founded, all that good stuff. Because I know it's in terms of conservation organizations, it's uh, it's relatively kind of new on the scene. Yeah. So started as a conversation um, with a wildlife biologist back in 2014. Um, Peter Munich founded the organization and it was really kind of brought up as a you know, hey, there's a lot of cool species, you know, specific orgs that are doing a lot of good work, but there's really nothing out there for mountain goats specifically. Um, and they were kind of getting tossed around by the wayside. They were kind of the, you know, no pun intended, scapegoat of, you know, a lot of recreation impacts and disease impacts and things like that. So it was, we recognized that, you know, and at times, if 
if something tended to have to fall off the radar in terms of you know, funding or data collection or something, it was usually mountain goats. So uh, it was started really with an impetus of like, hey, let's, what can we do with limited funds as a, you know, a budding organization, a bunch of volunteers who just want to help mountain goats, what can we do? And it started with our ground survey efforts and really ensuring that, you know, consistent year over year population data is is done in as many mountain ranges as we possibly can so that's kind of where it started and since then it's butted into everything from helping fund some relocations doing a lot of the disease research and some habitat research we have funded um some ultrasound work and fecal studies and now we're expanding more and more um, into looking at a lot of travel and migration habits um, what what does or are there some key markers and key key indicators there and really just trying to build a very big knowledge base around mountain goats so why do you think it was that you know you kind of mentioned it there in your explanation or, or you know kind of the reason for looking further into mountain goats. Why do you think it was, uh, or I guess, you know, your opinion or, or your experience that, that mountain goats were kind of an afterthought, right? Why was it that that was kind of the thing that was always kind of slipping through the cracks? I mean, when you have, you know, foundations for a lot of these other, you know, big game animals, you know, why, why mountain goats, uh, was it kind of an afterthought? Really, I wouldn't say it was so much as an afterthought. It was in so many biologists that I've talked to and I've built relationships with over the years, it's, they get pulled a hundred different ways. They have private landowners that have interest. They have public land, public land users and recreational people that want to provide input. They have, you know, the other species specific organizations that have a concern about, you know, lower, lower populations in some areas and others and there's they're getting pulled a lot of different ways and at a certain time you only have so many dollars and so much time in order to do something so really since there was no one advocating for mountain goats it was kind of like oh you know this mountain goat stuff would be cool to do but i've got this elk project i've got this sheep project i've got this waterfowl project, et cetera, et cetera, down mm -hmm. the line. And all of these things that kind of needed to take priority. And before you know it, you haven't surveyed a population of mountain goats in five years. And it's kind of like, oh, we really should, you know, create a better way to ensure that this work continues to happen. Yeah. So the organization, was it actually founded then in 2014? Yep. So we did our first projects in, in 2014. Uh, ground surveys across the, the northwest of uh, lower 48, so from Montana over to Idaho, and really just kind of talking with biologists and finding out areas like, hey, where do you normally fly? Any idea? What are your thoughts about letting a bunch of volunteers go out there and count goats for you? be able to provide some feedback over a weekend or something like that so and from there it's really just expanded into more and more areas and really identifying sort of key areas that you know what's an ideal area for a ground survey versus an area that you know is more ideal for an aerial 
survey, things like that. And then, of course, again, just expanding into now we're helping to fund student research projects. We're helping grow the next the generation of biologists by helping ensure that they have the, the funds and th funds and things that they need to travel to these different um, mountain ungulate conventions you know, where they're going to present their paper on mountain goats, whatever they did. So it's we've expanded quite a bit in terms of the scope of what can we do for mountain goats. Okay. So what exactly is your role there, Lee? Uh, I am the operations coordinator. So what exactly does that entail? <laughs> that entails a little bit of everything. Um, so I'll kind of answer that by talking about our other two people that we've got. Um, so Ross Bruno uh, is our development coordinator. And we're actually, um, and he's helped us with really bringing on a lot of sponsors and big partners to help provide funding and really help us grow. Um, and then we've got Carla Ryan and she is our admin. She helps to push all the buttons that need to be pushed in terms of someone fills out a funding request and it gets approved by the science and conservation committee. She helps to ensure that all of that, um, funding process, you know, happens you know she's pushing the buttons uh i kind of handle everything else um so i do everything from shipping merch and things like that um if you reach out to us on our inbox or or you email our store it's typically me responding um i work with all of our members in our membership database our communications our newsletters blog posts things like that um as well as i work on our conservation side so i go out and help us help find projects for us i work with our regional representatives and when we're forming new relationships with the biologists and creating sort of our calendar and our schedule for what are the projects we're going to do this year i find those projects and i help ensure that they're facilitated from start to finish so so how is it that you found yourself working with the goat alliance i mean <clears throat> i know you and i got a chance to speak yesterday because um, we had to reschedule because of a power outage on my end <laughs> um so how was it i know you're you're originally from louisiana so how did you find yourself in montana and then you know more specifically um working with the goat alliance sure so moved to montana a handful of years ago um back up a little bit from there. So my degrees in conservation biology and resource biology. Uh, granted, I had a focus on studying sharks, but um, the data, the data methodologies still are still apply in my book. Um, so I graduated from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And then life throws curveballs at you. And you know, sometimes you have to do some things that you didn't think you'd be doing. And I found myself working in to corporate America and putting my analytic background that I that I got in college from looking at population dynamics and things and running tests. Uh, I found myself in to corporate America doing doing analytic reporting for operations and finance. Um, kind of started working my way up the chain. And corporate America lived in Atlanta for quite a while and uh, realized I was like. I, don't really want to do this anymore. I don't. <laughs> uh, I want to get back to the conservation side. Um, I, at the time, I was volunteering for 
put Ducks Unlimited and Trout Unlimited groups in that area. Um, I helped kind of kickstart the Southeast region of backcountry hunters and anglers. And I sat on that board for a while and I was doing tons and tons of other volunteer work for conservation groups and various riverkeeper groups in that area. And just realized I definitely wanted to get back over here. I was taking yearly trips out here to, to hunt and to camp and fish and everything like that. So I just thought, you know, why not just bite the bullet and go? And so that's what I did. Um, I work for a tech company here in town um, as a project manager, but a couple of years ago, uh, actually, I want to say, like, when was it? Late May of 2020, uh, the Goat Alliance had put out an opportunity for, they were looking for some help. And so I applied and here I am today. Yeah. No, that's, uh, I, I'm always interested to, to kind of hear people's story uh, in terms of how they kind of ended up, you know, where they are. And for, in your case, particularly, you know, from studying conservation and wildlife, you know, with a focus on sharks, and then now, you know, where you're at with the, you know, the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Yeah, that's, that's certainly a, a big jump or a, kind of a 180 from, you know, big water uh, right. you know, to, to the mountains and, and things like that. It's, it's, uh, it's very cool. So with the mountain goats, you know, how many states can people actually find mountain goats in? And I guess what, which states would those be? Um, including our Canadian provinces and stuff, I believe we're looking at 11 so far. Okay. So pretty much ballpark it from Alaska south all the way down to Colorado. Okay. Yep. So none in New Mexico, none in Arizona. So what would you say, I guess, is the like actual like mission of the Goat Alliance? Yeah, so our mission in a nutshell, uh, the actual verbatim version can be found on our website. But, but our mission in a nutshell is to increase and enhance the management, range, and population of the Rocky Mountain Goat where it's native and suitable non-native habitats. Um, and, and we want to make sure that we're doing that, though, without negatively impacting native ungulates. Um, and we definitely want to ensure that while we're doing that, we're educating for the public of ongoing projects and partitioning for the expansion of sustainable hunting across the continent. So it's a multifaceted um, mission statement, but each of those kind of line items is important. You know, we definitely want to advocate for the expansion of both native and suitable non-native. We definitely want to not doing anything at the peril of any other native ungulates. And then we have mission of not only educating our hunting followers and members about the conservation needs around mountain goats, but also the whole recreation side. So that's why it says public in general, right? Because there's, there's recreational impacts to all these things as well. So it's a very all encompassing, um, mission. Yeah. I know we've had a few guests on, uh, in the past that have participated in some of your goat surveys. Um, I believe Greg Vandenberg, um, who was one of our first handful of guests that we had on is in South Dakota there and has 
participated in a few. Uh, Jared Frazier, obviously the executive director of 2% for Conservation, um, which I believe he also serves on the board uh, for the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, uh, has participated in some of those as well. So from like a a survey standpoint, how many of those are you guys um, trying to put together, uh, you know, in a given year? That varies. Um, So... Typically, it's going to range anywhere from five on the low end to maybe seven or more on the upper end. Okay. Um, part of that really kind of depends in a narrow window of time of kind of when we can do it, because we do need the engagement of the biologist and their team in order to do these surveys. So when we talk with them, it's... And when I say engagement, they don't necessarily have to actually go participate with us, although we absolutely would love it. And most of them do 90% of the time that does happen. But we look at kind of a window, ideally sort of late spring throughout early fall. But at the same time, there's areas where it might make sense to do it in the winter. It might make sense to do it while there's still some snowpack and maybe the mountain goats are a little bit lower make access a little bit easier because every mountain range is absolutely different. And then we also have to take into consideration all the logistics. Um, is this a range that we can do with 30 volunteers or is this an, because it advances because it's pretty wide open and we can see a long ways and groups can be four miles apart. Or is this an area that we're going to need a hundred plus volunteers because it's nothing but slot canyons. Yeah. And we're going to have to have 30 groups up at each section. One at the, one at the wall, one in the middle, one at the beginning. So all of that kind of goes into the planning and the structuring. And we work with the biologist as well to determine, you know, we have a methodology that we like to follow, but they may want some additional data points. Um, and, you know, since we're going into an area that they may not get a chance to survey at all, you know, for example, when we were in Colorado this year, uh, they also they also asked us to grab that same data that we were getting on mountain goats for sheep. So we were able to help ensure that some sheep data is collected there as well. And then we're slowly expanding that as well um, into looking at like recreational impact and we're counting you know, how many recreators we see both motorized, non-motorized um, in certain areas. So a lot of, a lot of different data points and all of that kind of goes into how many we do a year, but rough numbers tend to range anywhere from five on the low side, five on the low side, seven to nine on kind of the high side. Yeah. You know, I see a lot of stuff on like, <clears throat> let's say social media, Instagram, whatever, of a lot of like, especially during the summer months when a lot of people are in the mountains recreating, you know, maybe uh, doing some through hikes, um, you know, maybe doing some, some uh, you know, camping kind of in the backcountry, high mountain fishing, stuff like that. And they tend to encounter mountain goats. And it almost seems like as close as a lot of these people find themselves, you know, in, in terms of proximity to mountain goats it's almost it's really unlike any other animal wild animal that i've ever seen like they don't they don't seem to be scared i mean like you know like i mean you'll see pictures where people are you know perched up on a rock on a peak or something like that and they've got mountain goats you know 10 15 feet away from them right and i and i think you know with my experience in the outdoors and whether it's like an elk a mule deer a white-tailed deer like 
I mean, you're not getting within, you know, a couple hundred yards of those things uh, without them winding you or just, you know, your mere presence, you know, spooking them and having them run off. So what is it about mountain goats that kind of allows, you know, what seems to be kind of more human interaction with them? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of different theories and stuff on there. I mean, ultimately, we can't necessarily get inside their head and <laughs> ask them what they're thinking, but they do have a bit of a gregarious nature. Um, there's some thought around that because they're more closely related to antelope than true goats, and taxonomically, they actually kind of fall right in the middle, um, that there's some of that gregariousness that you have from antelope where they're a bit are curious they're kind of not sure what you are they're willing to investigate you a little bit some of that may carry over behaviorally it's also a bit of a habitat sort of ideal like they're not really running into like tons and tons of predators where they're at up on peaks which is typically where most people are getting their selfies and stuff for instagram or something they want to show that they climb some crazy peak and of course that's going to tend to be where they are um if you run into them more in the trees or kind of down low and stuff, they may be in an area that's potentially more predators and stuff, and they may want to back away a little bit more. But at the same time, there's um, one of our biologist partners was showing me a video the other day. Uh, they had some they had some salt from the snow. Well, they had some salt that had been put down on the roads on their tire. They had drove up to a trailhead during the early spring to uh, do some work and a young mountain goat had come down and was like licking their tires to get the salt off. And she tried to fuss at it and kind of shoo it away. And the goat just didn't really care. <laughs> but that's the other thing is that they, they really just haven't been peopled very much. You know, they're not particularly, people aren't necessarily trying to hug them, but people aren't really kind of like threatening them and you're making a lot of loud noise and trying to push them away either because, you know, which they should be doing. Um, as a matter of fact, one thing I'll, I'll point out, we, uh, you may have heard in the news a couple of weeks ago, by this point, maybe even three weeks ago, there was, um, a young grizzly had thought to have been killed by a mountain goat, um, in Canada. And they were biologists, biologists had done a necropsy on it and they thought that the puncture wounds and where it was found and, the circumstances it was kind of a young um slightly um emaciated female that it had tried to you know maybe take advantage of a mountain goat and it was killed uh because they do have incredibly sharp horns and that's kind of like okay what's the take-home from that well the take-home is that if a mountain goat can kill a grizzly even if it is a slightly you know emaciated young grizzly it can certainly kill you right and so just like any other wild animal, we see them you know, like we hear stories every year of people getting flipped over by bison in Yellowstone because they got too close or this or that. And it's like, well, you know, mountain goats are perfectly capable of harming you as well. And considering you're in precarious areas on the edges of, you know, cliffs and tall peaks and areas with shale, it's probably not a good idea to be going doing that. But they also, you know, come down and they tend to investigate a bit more right so like if you set up camp and you happen to go outside at night and you know go to the bathroom and stuff and you're camping in mountain goat area it's a very good possibility that you'll have a mountain goat in camp with you you're licking up urine as a mineral yeah so um 
just us being there and, and that kind of thing, it kind of invites them a little bit and, uh, in some ways. Yeah, you know, and I, I tend to think about it too. And if you think about, you know, some of the other big game species, you know, elk, mule deer, white-tailed deer, it's almost like kind of ingrained in them or kind of passed along from generation to generation or they they learn uh, certain things from, you know, their mothers when they're growing up about things to be leery of, uh, you know, when to kind of sense danger, what's a dangerous thing and when, you know, to get the hell out of the area that they're in because of a potential threat. And if, you know, mountain goats are kind of, like you said, a bit more precarious and and curious and, and, you know, more willing to investigate that that same, you know, curiousness, I guess, gets kind of passed along to generation and generation. So there's, you know, it's never kind of fully ingrained like people, people could be in trouble, you know, they're like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe they had an experience, like you just said, where they came into a camp somewhere and there's minerals and they kind of put two and two together and like, well, we could, you know, this isn't a threat, you know, we can actually, you know, get some, you know, nourishment from these people that are here. Absolutely. And habituation and like, you know, movement impact is, is a real thing. We've got a lot of collars on some goats in some very high recreation areas. And kind of the surprising thing is that, you know, the goats might move a little ways away during some of the high traffic times and seasonal periods, but they're not going to not go where they want to go. So if that means they're going to cross a trail with you, they're not too worried about it. They know what activity looks like. They have a good idea in that area that people really aren't going to bother them. They might get a little closer. And there is a certain point where you're going to push too hard and you'll either get a threat response or push them out of an area, you know, scare them and spook them off. Um, so there is a limit to it, but absolutely there's, there's a habituation element to it as well. And if they're just used to it, then they're just used to it. Yeah. So, with every kind of species and, and big game animal, I guess there's there always seems to be, um, you know, certain I guess threats kind of within the herd or within the species itself. Um, you know, CWD, chronic, you know, or yeah, chronic waste, uh, EHD. I mean, there's a lot of different diseases and things out there that that affect these populations. So, what is the I guess the biggest threat that the mountain goat population faces? Oh man, uh, it's potentially a pretty long list, and I think we're still trying to figure out what some of those are. Certainly, from a disease perspective, Movi is kind of the big one that they get, um, and that's kind of the one that I think most people are sort of watching out for. Um, and if there's any sort of testing that needs to be done, that's kind of the first thing on the list. Like, let's test you know for Movi. Um, other than that, really, there's, you know, there's a lot of studies that are coming out right now. And there's a lot of things that are looking at habitat impact and, and some climate change, you know, uh, in areas where or they used to have maybe high alpine grasses or mosses or lichens and, you know, something like that. Maybe some of those are being reduced. How much of that is due to lower snow levels versus how much of that is due to in areas where it's got high recreation, high recreation activity, you got more people just stomping around. 
right. and kind of putting more wear and tear up there. So there's a lot of things that they're really kind of looking at. Um, and then I don't think there is every one single silver bullet. I mean, even from a predation perspective, there's some areas where mountain lions are kind of the main predator. Um, and there's other areas where golden eagles are the main predator. So having that kind of one silver bullet for like, what is the thing? It's a combination of, you know, there's some disease, there's some predation, there's some habitat loss, and there's certainly some human impact. Yeah, so kind of what you had explained, you know, early on with kind of this, the all-encompassing mission uh, that the Goat Alliance has. I mean, how do you guys determine, you know, what you want to focus on maybe in a given year uh, in terms of trying to uh, maybe rectify a specific um, whether it's predation, whether it's human recreation, you know, the impacts that, that the things that you just listed, you know, how do you guys go about, you know, trying to correct or, or improve upon, um, you know, maybe some, some of the things that are causing, um, you know, the population to decline or, you know, goats moving out of certain areas? Sure. So first off is it starts with a question in terms of, you know, we want to look at this area because we think something's going on what's happening to the goats or why are there fewer goats in this area or why are we seeing an impact and maybe it's anecdotal reports we're getting you know there might be an area with a certain number of tags but the success rate's gone down quite a bit or um we've done a number of surveys and we've seen we feel very confident that those surveys weren't impacted by weather or any other circumstances but we're potentially seeing some decline in numbers there or it's an anecdotal insight from from the public and from our membership and saying hey like we need to look at this we've also got our regional rep program um who they they're very engaged with the local communities around mountain goats in their areas and so a big question comes up and then we we kind of talk through that question with our science and conservation committee who is a group of cumulatively they have over a hundred years experience in mountain ungulate biology um both active and retired wildlife biologists as well as in the university and an academic uh landscape we kind of toss around ideas like what might be interesting to look at and then we also take a look at we engage with our state and provincial biologists and say what are the things that are impacting your areas what's that pipe dream project of mountain goats that you want to do but you're too focused on this other species right now or these other projects and you just don't have time to tackle um so we kind of grab all of those questions figure out how and where they apply to our mission statement and then we say okay how can we help fund and you know maybe it's time maybe it's dollars maybe it's a combination of both which is usually the case how do we ensure that this goes forward and and we can order and we can prioritize them sometimes they're very quick and simple and we do a ground survey over a weekend or it's a grad student that's just doing this one season of work and they're going to publish a paper on it sometimes it's going to be a, a four-year effort and it just kind of depends on what what the scope is a lot of times we're we're two of the main projects that we are funding right now are both continued research because the research pools that they've been looking at are either 
imperiled mountain goat areas that have been monitored for quite a long time and we want to ensure that like those good data the good data records and that work continues uh an example of that is the Call Ridge area in Alberta. And then we're also looking at the Bridger Range in Montana because genetically it's got some of the best goats in it, but it's also one of the most heavily recreated areas in the state. I mean, the Bridger Range is literally in Bozeman. So as much recreation as it gets, how does it have such good, um, how does it have such good genetics with mountain goats so there's some collaring work that goes there there's some camera trap work that goes there all that kind of stuff so i don't really know if i fully answered the question but you know how we decide on work um comes from a a variety of factors one is people just saying hey this is the work i want to do and they submit that funding request to us and it gets processed we review it find out how it aligns with our mission statement and we'll make a recommendation. And then also just those kind of pipe dream, like, man, it would be really nice to, to look at this. It'd be really nice to do this. And we see how feasible that is in order to do it. And does it align with our membership um, views? And it doesn't align with our mission statement. Yeah. So how many members, um, I mean, so you guys have been a, an organization for, for seven years now. How many, uh, what's your membership like, I guess, in terms uh, of numbers? Yeah, batting just under 1,100 right okay. now. Um it ebbs and flows a little bit if you know as people renew um but i think one of the things that we're sort of like most proud of is that over a third of our membership are life members yeah no that's incredible we've got an incredible amount of support from our life members and people that are willing to step up in a very very big way in order to support us so yeah and those are i mean that's people like that i mean that's kind of with with my company with the average conservationists i mean those are the kind of people that that i i think need to be celebrated right the people that that make it uh, you know that become life members that you know see you know the value and the importance in in these organizations you know regardless of the species and it's it's those members that that make up you know the organizations i mean when you think of the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, you don't think of, you know, let's say 1,100 different people. You just think of the name and, and the work that they're doing. But it's all those boots on the ground. It's all the surveys. It's all, you know, writing in, uh, you know, or whatever projects that maybe they want to get involved with or they think that uh, should be looked at or considered for, you know, kind of some, some further investigation. I mean, those are the people that are, are really kind of driving the bus uh, in terms of, you know, all this work and, and data that's being collected for the betterment of the species. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're, what's fun is we did a membership survey not too long ago, but really just to get an idea of, you know, hey, we're growing pretty quick and we want to make sure that you're still happy to support us. And if there's something that that you want us to focus on, you'll let us know. And, and there was, you know, um, like one of the really big things that sort of came out from that is people were willing to step up even more than that if we have an opportunity for it. So it was like, oh, you want something above life membership? And then, you know, sort of like, okay, well, what would you like? And they're like, we just want to support mountain goats. People just, they're willing to do the right thing and help support in, any way they can and 
I think that's the that's the great thing about our organization is like you know we might not have the sheer volume of you know, numbers of members, but I would say that we have some of the most supporting members, not just from a dollars perspective, but just from an engagement perspective, and people that want to see us go far and are willing to do whatever we need help with better make that happen and that i think speaks at such high volumes and i'm so grateful for all of their support yeah yeah when when you have a, a membership base that puts that out there that you know all they want to do is help you know whatever they can do you know it's almost like you know like a, like a company that has you know a really good leader a really good you know boss whatever the case is i mean those employees they'll you know they'll run through walls for you you know if if they believe in the mission they believe in the work that you're doing uh it's incredible that a lot of times you don't even have to ask them to do it they just volunteer because they know mm -hmm. it needs to be done and they know it's the right thing to do absolutely so what are some of the, uh, you kind of touched on it, but what are some of the projects that you guys maybe have uh, coming down the pike in the next, you know, let's say like three to five years or kind of what is uh, some goals that, that, that the organization has, you know, in the, for the future? Yeah. So projects that are currently going on, uh, there's a couple of them that are short term and a couple that are pretty long term. Um, I mentioned the long term, longer term ones earlier in Call Ridge and Alberta and the Bridgers here. Some of the shorter term things that are still going to take another year. And I say short term because often projects are at a minimum year, year and a half. Right. Because um, there's some seasonality and then there's a time for actual like data collection and analysis and you can write the paper and everything. So it's kind of encompassing that, that time frame window. We've got some work going on in Utah with the University of Utah and a grad student there looking at high alpine vegetation and kind of looking at mountain goat impacts to as what's happening to mountain goats as high alpine vegetation changes. Um, we also have a couple of other things in the pipeline that I can't quite talk about project wise yet because nothing's been finalized and I don't want to let any cat out of the bag. Yeah, yet. no, I get it. Um, I understand. But uh, yeah. And then, we help to ensure so like an example of like a like a short-term thing um when we did our survey in the chiam and chilliwack area of bc uh just, just outside of vancouver uh jeff augustino our regional rep was real key to a lot of the success of that project and getting it started because that was an area that had not been not only had it not been aerially aerially surveyed i mean that we're not, not there had not been an aerial survey in some time but we had never done a ground survey there or or not just us no one had done any kind of ground survey effort there so and there is no mountain goat hunting in that area but there are mountain goats so we kind of wanted to get an idea of what does the population look like in there what kind of impact do we have you know from recreational use and all those other kind of things and that was an area we worked really close with the biologist in that area and he let us know about halfway through the planning of the ground survey that he had put in for a request for an aerial survey but it got denied so we were able to step up and ensure that that aerial survey still happened so not only did we have our ground survey but about a week or so afterwards they flew it counted the same amount of mountain goats within a margin of error and so not only does that ensure that we 
but we're good on and we're confident in that number and now we can start further discussions going forward about what work needs to happen there but that also leads a lot of validation to the effectiveness of our ground surveys and how they can be implemented in other places you know terrain and, and volunteer bandwidth notwithstanding so bigger stuff down the pipe um project stuff aside we grew a significant amount in the last 14 months we had our first auction this spring which raised a whole ton of cash which is great and so thankful for everyone who went with this and helped you know bid on items all of our sponsors who donated stuff and that was our first one and so we certainly had hurdles and you know (laughs) some lessons learned from it but uh we had a great team to kind of help push that through there will be another auction so that's something we are going to do again um it's really just kind of figuring out okay how do we continue to maintain the, the pace we have we've got we're doing well and we're ending up on more podcasts and more areas and people are hearing about us more and more and which is all a very, very good thing. So we need to ensure that we can continue to not only serve that growth effectively and those members, but we also need to ensure that we can continue to as, you know, linearly or exponentially as possible serve mountain goats in that same, you know, growth rate. So we implemented our regional rep program. I mentioned that earlier. Um, not too long ago and that's something we really hope to expand over the next three to five years so rather than having sort of like a chapter model right where like like most orgs do we have we are we're running through this regional rep program and so you'll see over the next little bit on our newsletters and on social media and stuff we're going to start introducing them to everybody but we have some in montana we have alberta we have BC, we have Idaho, we have Colorado, so we have Alaska as well. So we've got someone who is a member. They're dedicated to our mission statement and to help ensure that our voice is heard there and that the people who are concerned about mountain goats in that area have someone they can reach out to as well. So we're going to start introducing, so please stay tuned to social medias and newsletters and stuff um, as we introduce you to those folks. Um, but that's a that's a real big thing for us and it's going to help us really continue to grow and ensure that the work still happens because now we'll have more eyes and more voices and things like that yeah so now in this example that you were just kind of talking about where you were where uh, the request to do a a plane survey uh, an aerial survey had been denied and then you guys were able to kind of step in and and help get that that Mm -hmm. done along with um uh, the survey that, that you guys did from the ground. So, you know, the ground and the aerial yep. where there's a population of mountain goats, but it's, it's not, um, uh, an area where you can hunt. Is that something that, you know, as you guys collect this data and you, you do all the analytical work that maybe five years from now, if, if it looks like that population is growing kind of to the detriment of the landscape, that they will open maybe that area up to mountain goat hunting is that something that you guys can kind of have a hand in or or offer an opinion or just kind of supply facts to whoever is going to make that decision 
Absolutely. So in our mission statement, that's kind of the final line of it is that we do promote and we do advocate for the increased sustainable keyword there, um, hunting opportunities for mountain goats. And so not only do we say, now I'll preface this, we never do anything. We never, we're not doing this research because we're like, hey, let's do all this research so we make sure we get more tags in the area. Right, right. It's, it, it, it isn't done with that intent. The work needs to happen. Um, if we can expand, if it's an area that's suitable and, hey, the population is below objective and there's an opportunity to grow it and then over time we're able to see, you know, hey, we've surveyed this area for 5, 10, 15, however you know, long we get to go, years now, and we've seen not only the population in, increase, but it's now at carrying capacity, it's at objective, we feel comfortable with it, um, we haven't seen another tag um, to provide it or given, we would absolutely advocate for that. But we'll also advocate for an area that has a population that's dwindling and should would be beneficial to maybe have a tag reduced as well okay so definitely on both sides i guess kind of of the fence so to speak where you know taking tags away adding tags whatever's going to be uh like you just said for the betterment of you know maybe that particular herd uh in that particular yep. area yep sustainable hunting is the keyword there yeah so how is it, you know, when you're doing these ground surveys, I mean, how, you know, how confident do you guys feel after a weekend of, let's say, you know, you have, you know, let's just a round number. Let's say you have uh, 50 volunteers to, to survey, to do a ground survey in an area. I mean, how confident do you guys feel at the end of that weekend um, with the data that you've collected in terms of, you know, what it, you know, how does that truly reflect, reflect, excuse me, um, you know, the actual population that's in that area? Do you guys, are you guys usually pretty close to, you know, maybe comparing that to, to some aerial surveys or is it some instances where it's only ground surveys that are able to be done in that area? Sure. So we do all of that work with the biologist in partnership. And that's why the, the partnership and the relationships with biologists are so crucial. So crucial because otherwise we're just a bunch of mountain goat enthusiasts handing them <laughs> a bunch of data and they're going to go, what do you want me to do with this? So we never do anything in a silo on our own. Um, it's always done in partnership with them. And so, so for example, we'll survey an area, we'll take all of those data sheets and we have our methodology that takes a variety of things to encounter when you come do one of our ground surveys. You're you're going to be counting adult goats and kids. Uh, we typically don't worry about a Billy Nanny count because while we do a lot of our Billy Nanny quizzes on Instagram and things like that, oftentimes where we're counting these goats, you're looking through spotting scopes and it's pretty far off. And in a real world hunting, situ hunting, hunting situation, you'd want to get a lot closer anyways, to be sure. Um, and then if you're, we can start sort of throwing off data and it's kind of irrelevant. We just kind of want to know adult goats and kids. And then we're going to not only mark how many do I see, but I'm also going to look and see what time of day did I see them? What was their 
direction of movement. Um, how many were there in a group and what was that group makeup, right? Was it, you know, two nannies and two kids and they were moving across the peak from me. I'm sitting at 9,000 feet. They're roughly about the same elevation and they're moving east. Um, if there's another group that's down the ridge from me that has a view of the easterly side of that peak and two hours later they see a group of four goats of two nannies and two kids around whatever elevation we can often assume that okay that's a double count and that's right. the same group of goats so our methodology is tailored to ensure as much accuracy as possible but we'll also look at the historic trends with the biologist really squared away and say you know do we think that this was an accurate count and there's a margin of error right there's it's there's an expectation that weather is going to be the same um it's not going to be you know or it's going to be the same temperature it's going to be just as dry or just as wet or just as many people recreating or just as few uh whatever it may be and obviously we know that that's not always the case that's not that's not always going to be true so we look at trends over time from past efforts and kind of compare it to now and say how accurate do we feel that this is if it's okay. drastically off and we're able to identify like you know it was unseasonably warm or unseasonably dry for example when we did the bridgers this year that was we changed methodology a little bit normally we do that over an entire weekend we wanted to try doing something a little bit different and say let's just do it in a five-hour window um because that's when historically from most of our surveys just on that one saturday afternoon early evening that's when the majority of the sightings and the counting happened so we said okay well rather than requiring people to go for an entire weekend and require them to you know stay up high let's go ahead and scale it back and let's try just this window. Well, not only did that potentially kind of bite us in the butt a little bit, but it also did just about every little spring creek in that area was dry. Um, it was unseasonably hot. Um, I counted in my area just in that five hour window over 70 hikers. So all of these things sort of increase when we ended up looking at the data we've realized we probably only actually counted about a third of the goats that were there okay. so that's an area that we're kind of like okay we don't we know for sure that two-thirds of the goats just didn't just you know disappear or die off they were probably hiding down in the tree somewhere somewhere well away from um recreation crowds um, areas where they could get shade and water and just areas where we could not see them. And in some areas, there's a lot of instances in that particular area as well that they are nocturnal in some instances. So uh, that's an area that we're just going to say, okay, we don't need to make any drastic, you know, changes or anything like that. But we are going to go back and probably resurvey that area and maybe go back to the weekend long methodology and take all of those things into account. Yeah. So for the average person that, you know, knows of mountain goats, but that's maybe all that they know, right? They know, they know what a mountain goat is. They kind of, you know, know, you know, roughly the type of areas that they live in, you know, kind of high country, rugged areas. So what is, uh, what is something, I guess that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know 
uh, about a mountain goat that you can kind of share with that's that's just kind of I guess interesting bits of information. Oh man, uh, quite <laughs> where a do you start, uh, eh? <laughs> yeah, where do you start? They're such a unique animal, and that's like one of the reasons that they're one of my favorites. But um, if you sort of look at kind of just their their physical build, right? They're very front heavy. They're all chest, and that's designed you know and to say design but that's the that that anatomy shape you know rather than being very uniform like a deer or you know very evenly kind of split and symmetrical in some instances um from a from a front to a rear they're very they're very asymmetrical they're very chest heavy that allows them to climb up quite a bit their hooves um they have pads on the bottom and they're actually kind of soft. So it helps to kind of, you know, it almost acts like a slightly deflated tire if you're going to go off-roading. Right. And it helps to kind of grip and, and things like that. Um, their scent glands um, are right behind their horns and during the rut, things like that, billies will get what looks almost like a big hockey puck right behind their horn. Um, so many cool little just physiological traits and stuff that 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 are out there yeah no i mean that's like uh like the glands behind their their ears or their horns excuse me i mean that's something that yeah i didn't know i mean i think i asked that question more from a a a personal uh curiosity oh sure than than maybe uh you know just wanting you know the listeners to know because you know like like a lot of things i mean uh, you know people that what I find is people who who tend to you know hunt uh, a specific species, whether it's you know mule deer, whitetail, elk, whatever it is, you know they 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 have a lot of knowledge about the species in general, and a lot of that is um, you know gained over time with hunting the animal, with you know kind of um, watching them or, or you know in their natural habitat, you know if they harvest an animal, uh, you know other um, conservation orgs that you know kind of put an emphasis on the anatomy and kind of physical makeup of these animals um, and again with mountain goat you know, with the goat alliance and being you know relatively new uh, in terms of you know tenure as an organization uh, you know a lot of that information unless you're you know a diehard you know mountain goat hunter that's it's probably a lot of things that people just don't know right mm-hmm. yeah I mean everything from there are certain similarities that they do have to other large ungulates and that, you know, during, during rut times and pre-rut and stuff, you will see some dynamics of the herd change, right? You'll see like some bachelor groups early on, just like you might with yeah. bucks or something. And then as the season goes on, that, that dynamics and stuff kind of changes and they're kind of doing their own thing. You see built like very large, very mature billies kind of always, on their own doing their own thing um whereas you'll see like very very young billies and stuff often hanging around a yearlings and things like that during certain periods of the year so there are certainly some similarities as well but um other little quirks and things um you know uh, i think one of the big things that not a lot of people know and one of the things that we goes into why it's so important to harvest a billy especially when you have an either sex tag is that nannies really aren't going to give birth until they're about four. Okay. So they're not like a white tailed deer. That's just going to 
pop them out, you know, once a year. Yeah, every spring. Yep, and and they're really only going to have you know, you know, one or or a or up to two. There are there are certain you know cases and uh, examples, and even some images that we have on our Instagram page and stuff where there's you know a nanny that's got triplets and stuff, but that's not common. So they're having fewer young, and it's taking them a lot longer to do that. So harvesting a nanny, um, where 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 not applicable while it is legal, um, in most areas, 99 percent of the tags out there are, are going to be either sex, although there are some nanny only tags and stuff out there, um, where it's appropriate because it's based on sort of whether the population dynamics and is it you know very nanny heavy. Yeah. You know, um, versus, you know, something that's a bit more, um, a proper sex ratio and things like that. Um, so what is a, I guess, so I, I always find myself kind of going back to whitetail just cause that's what I, from a, a big game perspective, that's what I, I certainly spend more time doing. And if you can find, uh, you know, it, it, it varies from state to state, right? But if, like, let's say in Michigan here, if, if you can, you know, harvest a, a four and a half year old buck, I mean, that's a that's a pretty darn mature buck, right? And, you know, if they've gotten to that age, especially uh, in Michigan where there's a, a very high number of hunters, um, you know, that's a, a really good buck, whether it's, you know, whether it has a huge rack or not. I mean, if you get it aged and you have a four and a half year old deer, I mean, that's, that's impressive. Um, you know, what is kind of the, the life expectancy or what is a, a mature Billy, uh, from an age standpoint look like? Well, that's a good question. Um, one thing that I was actually talking with a couple of biologists not too long ago with was that we we're kind of looking at what kind of data historically has been gathered around mountain goats. Um, and one of the things that really, there hasn't been a whole bunch of tooth aging and stuff on them. Uh, everyone's pretty much relied on, 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 annuli on the horns and stuff just like you look you would with sheep and there's there can be some variation in annuli growth and a growth ring appearance where it comes to um precipitation levels and things like that something it's it's theorized that there's the wetter an area is the more more separate more separation you may have between annuli thus leading to a longer horn given the same age of a goat of another area um right. so they have some mountain goats that measured only and i say only eight inches because that's a very stellar goat um here in montana that to, they tooth aged at almost 16 like oh, wow. like 15 and a half years old so there's a lot of variables that go into it um and so you know not every eight or nine inch billy is going to be that old right but um certainly you know i'm trying to see how i want to <laughs> phrase it <laughs> no, you're uh, all right. <laughs> uh, you know like when you look at the there's a lot of so just like whitetail like you were talking about there's so much other than the rack that goes into how old do you think that deer is? Right. You're looking at, you know, is there any sway in the back? Is there, there there's so many body characteristics. Right. 
Billy's and Mountain Goats in general have that same thing. Um, you might see a Billy that looks like he's a six to eight inch Billy because his ears are say on average four inches. The horns are about twice as long as that. If you would stretch that horn out, it's about the length of his face uh, or about the length of you know, from his nose to his eye. Um, so you're, you're like a kind of ballpark in it that seems to be about right. However, he doesn't really have a prominent hump on his back. He doesn't really have that big prominent kind of hump on his nose, that kind of Roman nose that they talk about. So while he, he might have, you know, big horns, and looks to be a very good goat he might not be that like truly caliber like very very mature old like mountain billy that everybody kind of iconically wants because yeah. he just doesn't have the body structure for it so yeah and it, i think like with that it's like what you touched on it could be genetics that give him the good growth in the horns it could be yep. like you said his vegetation you know the the food or the minerals that he's able to consume in in the specific area that he's living because I mean, if, if, if you look at a whitetail, I mean, you can look at, you know, a two and a half year old deer, which, uh, you know, let's say a two and a half year old eight point, or you could see, you know, a two and a half year old little fork, right? But they're both two and a half year, two and a half year old deer. Um, and they're just, you know, different ranges, different food source, different genetics. And it's, yeah, it, it, it's just one small, I guess, uh, factor uh, when trying to you know kind of determine the the age class of, of the animal yep absolutely so real quick here lee before i, I get you out of here i know you've got a, another another call and, and you've got your uh goat alliance uh monthly meeting tonight as well where can people find the goat alliance how can they get involved um you know or you know learn more uh you know about the goat alliance yeah so handful of different ways on instagram uh at goat alliance that's our come engage with us there um you'll learn about you know some of the topics and stuff that we we discuss and what's kind of on our radar from a conservation perspective as well as get to do some cool billy nanny quizzes that you'd be surprised at how many people still get wrong um <laughs> or or how many people instantly go to looking at horns when there's like other very obvious, like nail in the coffin things that are like in that image. Um, go to alliance.org is our website. Um, try to update that with blog posts as often as we can. Um, and they keep everyone up to date there. That's also the same place that you'll go to sign up and be a member. Um, we'd love to have you as a member. If you're not there real quick, I'll do a quick plug. We have a handful of different membership levels kind of, one to one to suit everybody um i think we have our one-year membership for 35 dollars. we have a three-year membership for a hundred dollars we have our lifetime membership for 750 uh and we also have a lifetime member installment plan what that is is if you want to be a life member but you can't necessarily pay it off in one lump sum 50 bucks a month um reoccurring charge to whatever you know card you want to put on file and it'll automatically bill you once you hit that 750 limit payment stop and you're now a life member um and we also have a couple of funds that they can donate to we have our straight our conservation fund which goes you know directly to to um research efforts and projects and then we have our education fund which helps go to our our educational efforts and our public outreach um which can be everything from 
more uh, more content as it relates to hunting, as, as well as um, putting up signs at trailheads um, in partnership with other agencies that say, you know, don't go taking selfies with mountain goats because they're dangerous. And here's <laughs> here's how you should act around a mountain goat. You know, um, so there's a lot of pieces there. Uh, the educational pieces also where we'll have our um, our student award program, which helps grow the next generation of mountain ungulate, mountain goat biologists, um, and ensure that they can, whether it's a plane ticket, a hotel stay, whatever they need to go present their paper to their peers and get their research seen. Um, so we help with all of that. Um, you can reach out to me directly, Lee, L-E-E, at goatalliance.org. Um, I also manage our other... Um, general inbox info at goatalliance.org so either way whichever one you you want to email you'll probably be chatting with me um yeah lots of different ways to um to reach out and get engaged yeah no that's great especially um kind of one if you look at you know a, a life membership of some of these other organizations you know 750 for a life a life membership i mean that's that's a great value uh, and a great price and especially with the installments because like you said not everyone has 750 bucks um you know but i tend to think that people kind of spend 50 bucks willy-nilly on things all the time whether it's you know, Starbucks over the course of a month, you know, fast food, whatever the case is. I mean, that 50 bucks uh, can be put to some good use um, doing that. So, no, that's great. And then also kind of explaining uh, the two different funds and, and where that money is actually being allocated towards. Uh, I feel like that's uh, having that transparency. Uh, and, you know, so members or potential members know actually where that money is going to, uh, I think goes a long way um, with people because, um, I, you know, obviously there's, there's overhead uh, and things like that with, with any organization, you know, so if, if you donate to the conservation fund, um, you know, you know where that's going to go. So that's a, that's a big thing. Lee, I really enjoyed this, man. I, I, this was very uh, informative for me. I don't know a ton about goats. So to be able to kind of pick your, pick your brain and, and learn, uh, you know, not only about the mission of the Goat Alliance, um, but just kind of some other facts and, and things like that along the way has been uh, really enjoyable. And, you know, I think, you know, not only yourself, but, you know, all of the members of the Goat Alliance and the team that you guys have there uh, for continuing to do the work that you're doing and making sure that a priority is put on the betterment of the species. Well, I appreciate the time and opportunity, Marcus. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, hopefully we can get you back. <clears throat> excuse me, get you back on again in the future, and uh, can talk about some of the successes that you guys have had. Always happy to. Uh, stay tuned this spring, um, late winter, early spring. We're going to hope to launch our 2022 ground survey schedule. And so, if we have one in your neck of the woods, or if you're going to be headed out, you know, if you're on the east and you're going to be headed out west for uh, a family vacation in the mountains or something like that, try and time it with one of our surveys and come out and spend a weekend looking for mountain goats. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Lee, we'll uh, take care of yourself and thank you again for joining me today. Sounds good. Thanks, Marcus. All right, thank you. All right. Well, thank you to Lee and the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance for kicking off Conservation Month here on the podcast. I would also like to thank the uh, partners of the podcast, Wild Rivers Coffee, 
Go Hunt, and Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, please be sure to go out and support the companies that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media where they're going to be posting only positive conservation-driven content, so you'll certainly enjoy those uh, posts in your feed. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, stay safe out there, and conservation starts with you.